0: The reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. As we begin, I have two spoiler alerts. First spoiler alert is, this sermon is political. By that I mean this sermon is about people and how they live together. The etymology of the word political can be traced to the Latin politicus, meaning of the people and their public life together. So while this sermon will most assuredly not be partisan, we will be talking about people, politicus. Politicus you and me and how we live together. Second spoiler alert, the sermon is titled The Who, but unfortunately, and I'm perhaps as disappointed as you might be, it is not about that wild rock band from 1960s London with their, the tremendous voice of Roger Daltrey and the sensational guitar work of Pete Townsend and such hits as Won't Get Fooled Again, Baba O'Reilly, I Can See For Miles in My Generation. There won't be smashing of guitars in the sanctuary today. Matthew 22 takes us to one critical question. And as we look at this ancient conversation, you should know that this is one small piece of a long conversation that stretches from the middle of chapter 21 all the way through the end of chapter 23. I encourage you to set aside time to read and reflect on all two-and-a-half chapters of it for yourself. And just to be clear, this isn't our conversation directly, you know, because here we are, cultures and miles and millennia away from what is actually a very niche conversation happening between the first century adherents of a peculiar minority religion who are living through occupation and oppression from an empire obsessed with its own power and wealth. It's almost as if we're listening in on a a family argument, and it can be awkward. Or it's almost as if we're silently following along as two people go back and forth at each other in the comments on a Facebook post. We don't know what that's like, do we? It can be awkward. I mean, these conversations appear polite on the surface, Especially as we're reading them from our eyes very distant from the original moment the original setting But beneath the appearance of being polite There is an icebergs worth of tension just below the surface The powers that be want to arrest Jesus because he's stirring things up This conversation happened right after his Palm Sunday protest march into Jerusalem by the way But they can't arrest him not yet So short of calling for use of excessive force and police brutality, they decide, for now, to fight him with words. They try to bash away his resistance with tricky arguments and clever pivots and lots and lots of questions. Questions not coming from a place of curiosity or an honest desire to learn or see things from a different perspective. These are questions meant to endanger, humiliate, and pigeonhole Jesus. And that can be really frustrating. Maybe you've experienced an interrogation like this from a friend or a family member or a coworker or a cop. Maybe you know how frustrating that can be. So we shouldn't be too surprised that this awkward family argument does dissolve, devolve into smack-talking and name-calling even. In these chapters, Jesus calls those trying to trap him a series of delicious digs, like fools, whitewashed tombs, and generation of vipers, which would be a great name for a band that smashes their guitars at the end of a concert. In Luke's version of the story, Jesus also calls them the H word, hypocrites. So, yeah, it's tense. Earlier questions in this conversation were complicated and slippery, but the one we're exploring today, it turns out, is pretty straightforward. Though it was still meant to trap Jesus in a heretical statement, and heresy was an arrestable offense. Side note, this was well before the concept of free speech afforded us in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So, but even with the name-calling, which Jesus is clearly allowed to do, but my kids are still not... Even with the name-calling, every response Jesus gives leads the people to experience wonder, awe, and respect. And he never, ever goes for the obvious answer or the right answer or the law and order answer. He always transcends the conversation and lifts our eyes to the holy. Jesus is asked a straightforward, albeit manipulative, question Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? If you and I were taking this open book test, might we head to the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai shortly after the children of Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt? I mean, those are, ten are like the greatest hits, right? The iTunes Essentials of Commandments. They're like the Now That's What I Call Commandments album released in 1446 B.C. But Jesus didn't go to what might seem like the obvious answer and cite Exodus chapter 20 and respond with the first of those notable ten, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus thinks about the question differently. Part of learning to follow Jesus is learning to follow Jesus' thinking. And here Jesus considers the whole picture the whole story the whole anthology of a people a planet and their god what a way to think about a question a question like what's most important in life or who to vote for jesus's example leads us to consider more than just one issue to look at the whole picture And in jesus's response to these conniving questioners he uses every opportunity to point to the presence and activity of God. Perhaps learning to follow Jesus needs to take into account these things, learning to think like Jesus, learning to look at the whole picture, learning to point to the presence and activity of God. Well, who doesn't love a BOGO, a buy one, get one? Jesus gives a two for one deal in his response. Rather than giving in to the temptation to abide by some hierarchy of laws and ethics, Jesus creates a whole new ecosystem when he holds together the two, count them two greatest commandments. Citing Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, Jesus says, The megas and protas commandment is you shall love the Lord. Your God. Megas, we know that Greek word, right? Mega store, mega millions, mega church. And protos, we know that one too. Prototype, protocol, protozoan. This is the mega and proto commandment, the greatest and the first. And then Jesus goes beyond. What the interrogators are expecting and says, and the second commandment is hamoyas. Hamoyas. We know this word too. Homogenous, homonym, homosexual. The second commandment is the same as the greatest in first commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Megas protas. Hamoyas, greatest first same. This was the mic drop. Jesus shut it down with that response. The couple chapters of contentious questions quickly come to a close, and Scripture says from that day on, no one dared to ask him any questions. He had given the final word, and the final word is love. Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer has been called a hymn of love to the world. And it is. It is beautiful, profound, moving. It is parts memoir, parts botany textbook, and parts history of the people that once lived in a grateful and generous ecosystem on this very land that settlers and colonizers have divided with property lines and choked with commodification. I want to read you a couple chapters from Braiding Sweetgrass. European languages often assign gender to nouns, but Potawatomi does not divide the world into masculine and feminine. Nouns and verbs both are animate and inanimate you hear a person with a word that is completely different from the one with which you hear an airplane. Pronouns, articles, plurals, demonstrative verbs, all those syntactical bits I never could keep straight in high school English are all aligned in Potawatomi to provide different ways to speak of the living world and the lifeless one. Different verb forms, different plurals, different everything applied depending on whether what you are speaking of is alive. To whom does our language extend the grammar of animacy? Naturally, plants and animals are animate. But as I learn, I am discovering that the Potawatomi understanding of what it means to be animate diverges from the list of attributes of living beings we all learned in Biology 101. In Potawatomi 101, rocks, are animate, as are mountains, and water, and fire, and places, beings that are imbued with spirit, sacred medicines, our songs, drums, and even stories are all animate. The list of the inanimate seems to be smaller, filled with objects that are made by people. Of an inanimate being, like a table, we say... What is it? And we answer, Dopwen Yewe, table it is. But of apple, we must say, Who is that being? And reply, Mishimen Yahweh, apple that being is. Yahweh, the animate to be. I am, you are, they are, she is, he is. To speak of those possessed with life and spirit, we must say Yahweh in the Potawatomi language. By what linguistic confluence do Yahweh of the Old Testament and Yahweh of the New World both fall from the mouths of the reverend? Isn't this just what it means? To be. To have the breath of life within. To be the offspring of creation. The language reminds us in every sentence of our kinship with all of the animate world. As I've reflected on this greatest of commandments, to love thy neighbor, I've wondered if understanding the distinction between the who God has lovingly created and the what that we have produced... For lack of a better word, is a key to learning to live in the loving ecosystem that Jesus created with his surprising response. So let's practice. What is that bowl? Who are those apples? What is that pepper spray? Who is that protester? What are the cages at the border? Who is that migrant child? What are those handcuffs? Who is that black teenager? What is that investment account? Who is that person in need? What is that mask or should I say lack of a mask? Who is that immunocompromised or otherwise at risk person? What is that extremist legislation? Who is that person seeking an abortion? What is that tax abatement for a corporate developer? Who is that student in Columbus City Schools? What is that semi-automatic weapon? Who is that student sitting in a classroom? What is that gendered bathroom? Who is that non-binary or trans person in need of a bio break? What is that white nationalism? Who are the children of God in every corner of the globe? What is that police helicopter? Who is that child sleeping in their home in Linden? What is that drone? Who is that Syrian grandmother? What is that criminalization of syringes? Who is that person who uses drugs? What is that war on drugs? Who is that black or brown person serving time for a baggie of weed? What is that addiction to fossil fuels? Who is that climate refugee? What is that paved parking lot? Who is that paradise with spots on my apples in the birds and the bees? When our love becomes fixated on the what of life, we get out of balance, insecure, weak, And we betray our inherent divine beauty as children of God. But when we reorient and direct our love to the who of life, we soar. Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus creates an ecosystem for living in love and everything, every little thing, every big thing, every possible thing about life hangs together, holds together, swings together, suspends together on this one thing, love. Everything hangs on love. So whatever you want to do, hang loose, hang tough, hang out, hang around, or hang on sloopy, be sure that you also hang on love. And as we hang on love, love provides the balance, strength, security, and beauty for our whole life together. So this week, when I came across this idea of all life suspended on love, I immediately pictured Amber high above the common stage performing aerials, as the horns and rhythm section of Mojo Flow keep up their funky groove. So I reached out to Amber and asked her a couple questions. I asked her what made her want to take on this sport, this form of art. She said she was mesmerized by the beauty of it. To her, it represents graceful strength. I asked her how she learned to do this. She said she reached out to the local circus arts community Through them, she was connected to an instructor and a studio. She trained privately two times a week for two hours each time for a whole year before she debuted her aerial performance. I asked her if she's had moments where she messed up or got scared or thought about quitting. She said she thinks it's natural to get nervous about doing something you've never done. She was definitely nervous about dropping herself, but she had to have faith in herself and in her training, which was excellent, by the way. She admitted that she absolutely has messed up in her aerial performances, but thankfully, she hasn't hurt herself too bad. And finally, I asked her if she's had a moment when it felt like it all came together. She said, every performance and she's grateful that it all comes together. The first time it all came together in a big way was the first time she completed a flip and drop move while suspended 30 feet in the air. And now you all get to learn how to do a flip and drop as well. The move was timed in the music, they were performing, and she had a few seconds to make the flip happen. The flip entails freeing your hands, flipping upside down while catching the silks from underneath yourself and opening your arms while flipping right side up. Everybody got that? When she completed that move, suspended high above the concrete stage at the Columbus Commons, she felt extremely grateful. Grateful to her trainer, Mariah, for instilling in her the skills and discipline to reach these heights, literally. She was grateful to her husband, Walt, for supporting her dangerously exhilarating adventure. Grateful to the owner of the studio, Movement Activities, and grateful to Jess of Amazing Giants for getting her started and providing her with a safe space to train. And grateful to Art Makes Columbus for providing the grant that bought the silks. Grateful to the audience for being there, and grateful to God for giving her the strength and providing her with protection. Thank you, Amber, for sharing these perspectives from the suspended silks 30 feet above the stage. You know, as I learned more from Amber's point of view high above the ground, I reflected more on the Megas and protos and Hamoyas commandments of love. And I saw more and more connections between the gospel of love and Ariel's. Beauty and grace inspired the beginning of the journey. It took a community. It took work. It took commitment. It took faith. And yes, there's mess-ups sometimes. And they can hurt. But by God's grace, we survive and we heal. And eventually, we soar. And when we do, when we soar with love, it fills us with gratitude. Gratitude for the journey we're on and the people we're on it with. So people of God, may the whole of your life hang, hold, swing, suspend from this one unifying principle divine love. Love for God, love for your neighbors, and love for yourself. May you know the balance, strength, security, and beauty of being suspended by love. Amen.